Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. We have a variety of hot animal news items from around the world for you today. And let's start in China. Everyone is concerned about coronavirus. And uh, you know, it's hard to get accurate information from the country of China. But recently, they decided to suspend the sale and consumption of wild animals, which is a, a common thing that they do there. That was supposed to be a temporary suspension. Well, after that, the Chinese legislative body, they approved a permanent nationwide ban on the consumption and illegal trade of wild animals. That's an industry that's uh, thought to be worth about 75 or 74, 75 billion dollars. And that's really big news because animal welfare groups have been pushing for something like that for a long time. This comes really as a result of the coronavirus issues. The exact species protected under the new permanent ban, well, it's not yet clear which species uh, they are. Exceptions include pigs and poultry and aquatic animals. But, you know, there is still concern about the pangolin. We've talked about the pangolin, which is the world's most widely illegally trafficked animal. This uh, small, scaled animal is desirable not only for its meat, but for those scales, which are used in traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, they are really un under pressure. And hopefully this ban will provide some added protection to these uh, pangolins in China. Now to Alaska, the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race. Listeners know about that. That is alleged sporting event that is very brutal for the dogs. And we've been critical of that for a long time. Well, you know, they rely upon corporate sponsors, and the most recent sponsor to ditch the sled dog race is Alaska Airlines, so good for them. Lots of people are claiming credit for that. For instance, PETA says they've been exerting a lot of pressure for a long time, and they've got statements about their role in that. The airline spokesperson, Tim Thompson, he said that PETA did not play a role in our decision. I guess we'll really never know the truth, but I would encourage uh, listeners, if you're not sure about what happens at the Iditarod, do a little internet search and learn about the real cruelty and the harsh conditions these dogs endure. Of course, on Animals Today, we've got a number of shows uh, dedicated to uh, Iditarod, so check those out also at animalstodayradio.com. I want to direct you to some really amazing video of whales swimming. What these scientists presented in their new research is video where they took Two small devices, they were on suction cups and they affixed them to the backs of whales in the wild. Okay, they're very small, they don't bother the whales and they only stay on there for a few minutes before they pop off. And they have, uh, besides video, they've got magnetometers and gyroscopes and accelerometers to measure speed, position and orientation. And what they are trying to figure out is how efficiently do whales move themselves in the water and how are they able to travel such long distances uh, with limited food. They found the whales have extremely high efficiency values ranging about 85 to 90 percent and the video depicts the beautiful up and down movement of their huge tails and the view you get from the video it's as if you are riding right along with this whale. It's just a fun little ride with these whales. Okay, this was a fun one. Felicet. Felicet is a cat. She 
was a French cat, and she was the first feline to go into space. And unfortunately, she's part of the history of animals preceding humans as we started exploring space. She was French, and she was part of a 15-minute suborbital mission in 1963. The French were involved in the space race, and this is their best effort, it seems, with the U.S. and the USSR almost erasing memory of the French program. Well, this little tuxedo kitty was in a class of 14 cats recruited into this rigorous training program, and she unfortunately won the spot, and they flew her into space, and she returned, and she had the usual electrodes in her head and and all the invasive equipment that you might expect. Ultimately, they euthanized Felicet and uh, examined her brain and her electrodes and so on. Anyway, thanks to a Kickstarter campaign, a cat enthusiast was able to commission a beautiful statue of the cat to recognize and acknowledge her achievement. Of course, these days we no longer send animals into space in place of humans because it's unethical and uh, we have many superior, more human-relevant methods that don't involve those animals. But let's give thanks to Felicet, who was an unwilling space explorer. Okay, Trump news coming. Donald Trump Jr. and his association with Safari Club International. Safari Club International, also known as SCI by the insiders. They're the largest trophy hunting group in the United States. They have an annual convention in Reno. We've covered this before. Last year, we uh, spoke about undercover video that was obtained showing all the uh, legal activities that are going on in there. Anyway, this year's convention had keynote speaker Donald Trump Jr. He, according to their release, wowed the crowd throughout the evening and he posed for selfies and then uh, galvanized the crowd with his uh, speech, which employed a mix of humor and seriousness. This speech developed a lot of momentum and that led to the evening's premier auction item, which was a hunt with Donald Trump Jr. himself and his son in Alaska for a Sitka black-tailed deer. Once the bidding started, the price rose dramatically, topping out at $190,000 for that trip. And that was such a success that the outfitter decided to offer another slot on another hunt, and that one garnered $150,000. The release also talks a little bit about uh, Trump Jr.'s history as a hunter, how he got into it. It also reports the winners of the Young Hunter Awards and their efforts to reach out to the non-hunting community in general. So that's uh, news from Safari Club International. Does he really think he and his hunting supporters are going to gain the interest of non-hunters? Well, that's one of their efforts. They're trying to, uh, they call them hunting agnostics. They're trying. Do you really think this is going to help his father's campaign? Oh, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't think he cares. Okay, Lori, I've got an emotional support animal story here I think you'll like. Actually, Two lawsuits have been settled in South New Jersey uh, against two housing complexes that were denying people who've got legitimate emotional support animals the ability to keep their animals in their apartments. One real estate operation agreed to pay a tenant $6,125 to resolve their lawsuit. They wanted to keep their Yorkshire Terrier puppy as an emotional support animal. They had a letter and it was seems legitimate. In a separate case, $4,000 
was paid to resolve a different discrimination lawsuit. This tenant had a dog and a cat and was allowed to keep both. So landlords, you're on notice. Even if you have a no pets policy, this supersedes your silly little policy. Okay, well, we might as well talk about the border wall. And uh, this has to do with some ocelots that have been under observation by scientists for a number of years now. And the bottom line is that they found a population, a small population of ocelots, beautiful cats, just adorable, living in northern Mexico near the border. And then another population of five living in southern Arizona, not too far away. And they are believed to be associated or, you know, loosely grouped and and probably a breeding group. Anyway, it highlights the importance that these animals need to go across the border freely. If you're going to build a border wall with the construction and vehicles and the paved road and the other signs of humans about, and if you're going to have a large clear area, which the ocelots avoid around this wall, then it's really going to disturb their natural patterns and uh, harm their population. So you hear about animal advocates and environmentalists claiming that the border wall is going to harm migrating animals or populations. And this seems to be a pretty good example of that possibility. Well, we could still build the wall and have like a big kitty door. A big cat door. (laughs) A big, beautiful cat door. (laughs) Little animal hoarding story uh, to brighten your day. Uh, 270 animals were found living in a duplex with a poor guy. Oh, boy. He actually is pretty... Sorry he did this and seems to now have some insight into the problems, but he started his uh, career with a few rescued rats. Then you get more rats, and then you've got mice, gerbils, guinea pigs, rabbits, and reptiles. This is in Kansas City, and uh, he was reported to animal control, and they did take his animals. They ultimately left him with a few pets, and when they checked on him later, he was doing fine with them. The young man said, I agree. I would say, yeah, like I was an animal hoarder. I guess I was ended up being at that point, but that wasn't my intention because I'm always worrying about them psychologically. A clinical psychologist with the Kansas City Center for Anxiety Treatment, Dr. Katie Kriegshausen, said that the hoarders really care about their belongings and their animals. It's difficulties in just organization and information processing. If you're noticing that this is interfering with a good quality of life, this is interfering financially or interfering with my relationships with family members, which we quite often see, that's the time where you can say, this is a difficulty for me and I need to get help. Seems that that doesn't happen often enough, right, Lori? Anyway, this young man, like I said, seems to be uh, doing pretty well. Well, what happened to the animals that were confiscated? Okay, they are fine. They were adopted out. They're fine. Just checking. Our friends at ProShares, they are an investment firm behind PAWS, P-A-W-Z. That's an exchange-traded fund that looks at the pet industry, and we've spoken with them before, and they like to share their business insights and uh, trends with us once in a while. And the uh, 2019-2020 American Pet Products Association National Pet Owner Survey is out, and uh, they're estimating the U.S. pet industry spending to be more than $75 billion for the year 2019. That's up from $72 billion in the previous years. As spending grows in categories like food, medication, and veterinary care services. They also report 67% of U.S. households have at least one pet. 
That's an estimated 84.9 million homes. Millennials now represent the largest segment of U.S. pet owners, and they are much more engaged with their pets. And finally, there's a push to expand, we've talked about this before, the penetration of pet insurance. Right now, only a small percentage of uh, pet people are investing in pet insurance, but there's a real growth opportunity there. More with animals today after this break. Lori, here's another good story. This comes out of Massachusetts, which has just banned wildlife killing contests. In these contests, participants compete to win cash or prizes for killing like the most or the heaviest animals or even the smallest animal of various species. Yeah, it's absurd. The Massachusetts Fisheries and Wildlife Board had a vote and it was a sixth one in favor of the ban. It's historic because it covers coyotes, foxes, bobcats, and other species and also goes further than other states have gone. Massachusetts is not the first state to pass such a ban in Arizona. They instated a ban in June of 2019. New Mexico has a coyote killing contest ban. Remember Maryland, they placed a moratorium on cow nose ray killing contest. Remember covering that? That was in February 2019, and they have extended this indefinitely. In Vermont, they abolished coyote killing contests. And in California, they banned awarding prizes for the killing of fur-bearing and non-game animals in 2014. New York and Oregon are also thinking about instating similar laws. So this is all good. Who would want to participate in these wildlife killing contests? I mean, Uh, can you think of anything more cruel? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Lori. These contests, they have no wildlife management purpose. Sometimes it's couched that way. For instance, the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife said that killing contests do not manage coyote populations anyway. Also, coyote killing contests may orphan dependent and young coyotes and create wildlife management problems because they introduce chaos into a stable family unit system. So it's a complete mess. But even if there was a reason to do it, even if... Even if, right. It's even still, if it's still there, sick. I, even if it did control the population of yeah. certain wildlife, to make a contest, to make it fun to kill animals, yeah, what know. kind of sick people are out there? Yeah, a lot of sick people. And I want to direct listeners to a really great new 60 Minutes piece. Leslie Stahl led this one, and it's about... 12 minutes long. You can also read their transcript um, online. You know, there's a huge amount of antibiotics used in raising livestock. Yeah. Um, it can cause antibiotic-resistant bugs, and these bugs can infect people and cause them great harm and, and kill them. More than 12 million pounds of antibiotics are sold in the country for livestock. They're used in uh, routinely in low doses to prevent illness in, in the animals who are cramped so close together to one another that they develop diseases. What Stahl explores is that it's very difficult to figure out where an outbreak started when one happens. You can get an outbreak of resistant disease, say, in a group of people, and then try to go back to the slaughterhouse and then try to go back to where the animals were raised, and they just won't let you in there. There's like a wall. Even the government officials can't get back there to see what's going on, and we know it's just a nasty business. So it's really more than I can summarize here, but take a look at this 60 Minutes piece. It's really 
it's interesting, and uh, just know that this problem of antibiotic resistance, it's not caused by overuse in people. It's caused by industry. That's the main reason why we have antibiotic bugs floating around. That's a really good point, Peter. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 12th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Back in 2015, the guest on Animals Today was Pierre Grabowski, Policy Enforcement Manager for the Humane Society of the United States Fur-Free Campaign. Now, Pierre explained how garments, shoes, and handbags marked and advertised as being composed of synthetic materials may actually have animal fur or animal hair. And it's not uncommon for retailers to call or label something faux fur, and it's actually animal fur. That's obviously deceptive labeling, but that's what happens. You really can't trust labels. Or a garment might have fur, and perhaps it's not even labeled at all. Anyway, Peter gave us a few really great tips or tests we can do to know exactly what you're buying and to distinguish animal fur from fake fur. So, of course, you can go to animalstodayradio.com, go to the archives page, and listen to the interview yourself. But I thought I would summarize what he said here. First, look at the tips of the unknown fiber. If it's animal hair and it's not been sheared, it should taper to a fine point, like a cat's whisker or a sewing needle or a sharpened pencil. You obviously need good eyesight and good lighting if you're going to do it in the store. He explains that some hairs are so fine it's impossible to see with the naked eye, like chinchilla, but thicker hairs like coyote or raccoon dog you should see clearly that if it tapers to a fine point, and if you see that, that's animal fur. Now, if you don't see that, if you don't see the taper to a fine point, then you don't know because it could have been sheared, and sheared mink is pretty common. He explains that fake fur is different types of extruded plastics, and during the extruding process, they just sheared straight across. So both fake fur and sheared real animal fur will look the same if it's cut straight across. So tips and tapering. That's it. That's animal fur. Now, if you don't see that, you don't see the tips, you don't see tapering, you got to do another step. And the second step is you want to look and see where the hairs are coming out of. Because animal fur is literally the animal skin with the furs still attached. So it should look just like someone's hairline, like your hairline. Or if you look at someone else's hairline, it looks like the hairs that are going into skin. And if you look close enough, you can actually see the pores. Fake fur is made like carpet. It has a mesh backing made of fabric. And the tufts of the synthetic fibers are woven into that. And then both ends stick out. So if you push the hairs apart and you're able to see skin, well, that's animal fur. Or if you see a mesh or fiber backing, that's fake fur. Now, he goes on to say that it's not so easy to tell sometimes, especially if it's been dyed. When the hair is dyed, let's say dyed black, what that does is the hair absorbs the dye and so does the skin. So there's pretty much no contrast there. So it's hard to tell the material. Now, if you still can't tell, then you pop some stitches and turn it over 
and that will allow you to see the underside of the backing, whether it's skin or fiber. Obviously, it might be hard to pop some stitches right there in the store before purchasing the garment, but you know, it's your call. And it's not exactly fair for the customer to have to buy a piece of clothing to do this test to figure out exactly what you're buying if certain retailers are unwilling to stop misrepresenting animal fur as fake fur. Now, this third test you really can't get away with by doing it in the store and you already have to own the product. And that is you pluck a few of the fibers, hold the fibers with the tweezers, right? Hold them over a plate and away from anything flammable and light the fibers with the cigarette lighter because a cigarette lighter is odorless, unlike matches, and then blow it out and then smell it. And if it smells like burning human hair, that's real fur, that's animal hair. If it smells like a plastic and different plastics smell differently, that's fake fur. So I found this information extremely helpful and I thought you would too. Thanks, Pierre Grabowski. And thank you for tuning into Animals Today. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. There's a new report from the California Department of Pesticide Regulation showing that many non-target animals are being poisoned by super toxic rat poisons. And just the other day, National Park Service officials reported that a three-year-old mountain lion died in the California Santa Monica Mountains and was found to have six different anticoagulant compounds in his system. So to talk about rodenticides and the significance of this report, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Jonathan Evans. He's Environmental Health Legal Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. He last appeared on the July 27, 2014 show, so I would encourage you to listen to that also. Jonathan, it's hard to believe it's been almost five years since we last spoke. I know. It has been some time, and unfortunately, a lot of the same issues we were talking about several years ago in terms of the dangers of rodenticides on wildlife and our families are still occurring today. You know, we, uh, as you noted earlier in, in the introduction, the California Department of Pesticide Regulation, even after taking steps to reduce the threats from some of the most dangerous types of rat poisons, um, we're still seeing a high level in, in wildlife, and we're still seeing un- unfortunate poisonings of pets and even um, kids going mm. to hospitals because of um, unex- unintended exposures to rat, to rat poisons. And there have been steps taken at the federal level um, by the Environmental Protection Agency and the California Department of Pesticide Regulation in some states, but it just hasn't gone far enough. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people, when they're dealing with a a rodent infestation, they, they don't realize that they're, um, when they go to the, the hardware store or the local convenience store to purchase um, some type of product that will help deal with their rat problem or their mouse problem or call the exterminator to come in, that they're actually having a really devastating impact on wildlife and also threatening their families. The harms that we're seeing from rodenticides are unfortunately very well known. We're seeing particularly uh, problematic effects 
with these uh, second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, um, which are the super toxic ones that you referred to. And there's a range of different types of rodenticides. There are several types of anticoagulants, and what that means is essentially it's a blood thinner. It can, and causes the animal to bleed to death, um, whether it's the rodent or whether it's an upper-level predator that eats that, um, eats that rodent as prey. Um, and some of these are actually uh, medical products that we see used um, to benefit people. You know, there's the, one of the, the first-generation anticoagulants is, is called warfarin. It's a blood thinner that people often take when they have strokes. If you take it at a very low level, it can actually um, be beneficial if you have problems like blood clots. But if you take it at a level that it's um, provided in rat poison, it can really be um, devastating. And they introduced after the first round, uh, the pesticide manufacturers introduced after the first round, the second generation anticoagulants. And that refers to just the second type, second iteration of it. And those are the, the types of products that are designed to be lethal upon one feeding. So uh, a rat or mouse goes in and eats that rat poison. It goes away. It takes usually a couple days for it to really take effect and and kill the animal. And during that time period, the rat or rodent um, becomes lethargic. It it, um, starts to to bleed to death and actually is looking for water. becomes a really good um, target for upper-level predators, such as hawks, owls, um, bobcats, mountain lions, and we have seen that um, in studies done by the Environmental Protection Agency uh, that these second-generation anticoagulants, these super toxic types, uh, are, have been found in 47, uh, excuse me, 44 different non-target species, 27 bird species, and 17 mammal species all across the U.S. So we have bald eagles and barn owls and black bears and bobcats from Massachusetts to the Midwest to Arizona to California that are all um, suffering from um, rodenticide exposure and uh, long-term chronic effects or even death from a lot of these um, rodenticide poisonings. And uh, unfortunately, when these um, rat poisons are used, it actually ends up poisoning a lot of the longer-term sustainable solutions to our rodent infestations. Um, you know, animals like barn owls and great horned owls, those are incredible um, natural predators at, at dealing with our rodent infestations. For example, a great, uh, excuse me, a barn owl can eat up to five mice a day. So if you're actually um, poisoning that, that um, barn owl, you're actually um, causing a longer-term potential threat through rodent infestations. And, and we know that there are much better solutions to dealing with um, rodent problems than reaching for rat poison, which actually ends up causing more problems in the long run because it kills upper-level predators, but also it doesn't really get at the heart of the problem. You know, why do you have a rat problem? Why do you have a mouse problem? Well, it has to do with um, they're looking for what we're all looking for in life. They're looking for food, water, and shelter. So the first thing you need to do as um, a homeowner or a resident is look at why the, the rodents are being attracted to your property. Are there food or water sources? Are they, are they getting into the trash? Are they getting into your home where you're leaving out pet food? Um, are, are there water sources they're coming towards? Are there shelter? Um, are, they trying, are they getting in your home? So in order to, to get them out of your home, you need to, to clean up the food and water sources that are drawing them in there. You need to seal up your home, so um, sealing in cracks or holes that they come through. They'll often, um, rats or mice will often come through small little cracks near um, water pipes or gas pipes that come into your house. 
seal those up to keep them from getting at in your home where they actually cause a bit of a conflict. And then once you realize that you've sealed them out of or where they're being attracted to, you can use um, non-toxic methods like snap traps and electronic traps that are humane um, ways to deal with the problem but are, are don't have those uh, types of secondary effects. There are also non-toxic types of um, rat poisons that don't affect, uh, excuse me, less toxic types of rat poisons that don't affect uh, um, non-target animals um, by using, combining like sawdust and salt that actually will dehydrate the, the rat or mouse. Um, and then there are also um, baits that lead to sterilization of the, the, um, the rodents or even um, if you live in a rural area, uh, using uh, barn owl boxes that can attract these natural predators that are better ways to deal with uh, the issue of um, rat and mouse infestation. So unless you get to the heart of the problem by cleaning up, sealing up, and trapping up, this uh, using rat poison is really just a short-term um, solution, and in, in ways it actually causes the problem worse. It's like putting a, a dirty Band-Aid on a, on a, a cut. It's not really going to cause the cut to heal. It's only going to cause a longer-term problem with an infection. So, Jonathan, these animals, these non-target animals like the mountain lions and the bobcats, they're eating the dead rodents? They're eating uh, rodents that have died or aren't rodents that are dying. You know, it takes several days typically for a lot of these anticoagulant rodenticides mm-hmm. to um, affect the, the, the target the rodent or mouse. So they, during that time period, they become easy prey. And as you alluded to earlier in the introduction, you know, a lot of these upper-level predators like mountain lions are, have, have a range of different rat poisons in them, up to like six different types of, of rodenticides. And the ones that are the most problematic are those second-generation anticoagulants because they're designed to be very toxic. They're designed to, to not filter out of the system very quickly, So, you, as opposed to some of the earlier iterations of these anticoagulants that um, are only in your system for days to weeks. The um, second-generation anticoagulants are in there for um, weeks to months. Hmm. So each time uh, a predator eats a, another rat or mouse, that anticoagulant builds up in the system until it gets to be a lethal dose and that upper-level predator. And where we're seeing a lot of the worst effects for rodenticide poisonings is really often in that um, wildland-urban interface where we have wildlife living close to homes. And the mountain lion story is a good example. You know, they're um, in addition to the, the recent unfortunate death of the mountain lion in the Santa Monica Mountains, there's also stories of um, successful ways of uh, recuperating uh, mountain lions. We have a story of, of P-22, which is the famous uh, Hollywood mountain lion that uh, graced the cover of uh, National Geographic in 2013 with the Hollywood sign in the background. Um, with a radio track and collar on it. And it's an incredible story because this mountain lion lives in Griffith Park, mostly surrounded by, uh, almost completely surrounded by homes as well as freeways. It likely had to cross major freeways to get there, the 405 and the 101 freeway, which are very large freeways. Um, and it lives in, in Griffith Park, which is um, several square miles. And a year after it was uh, on the cover of National Geographic, it was um, trapped and found to have an infestation of mange. Mange is a, a type of uh, skin disease that is in mammals that's caused by parasitic mites, leads to hair loss and scabs and lesions. And it's also um, researchers have found that, um, particularly in the Southern California mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains, there's a high correlation between rodenticide poisonings and, um, and mange. So the more rodenticide 
you have in an animal, the more likely they're able to succumb to, range, to mange. Fortunately, they were able to take that mountain lion, um, treat it with vitamin K, which helps deal with anticoagulant poisoning, and now P22 is, is happy and healthy and still um, rolling, roaming around the Hollywood Hills. But we need to really get at the problem of excessive uses of rodenticides in areas where there are wildlife. And unfortunately, there are steps on the horizon to really address this issue, and we're seeing it mostly at the state level because the federal government is really failing to act right now under the current administration. Um, we're seeing uh, a bill in California called the California Ecosystems Protection Act that takes two important steps. One, it eliminates all types of anticoagulants from state parks and state lands in California, but two, it also limits the most um, super toxic second-generation anticoagulants unless there's a real public health emergency or unless there's a real environmental emergency or for, for agricultural resources. So getting those products out of consumer hands and out of the hands of exterminators that are still using those products um, that get into the uh, food chain and into the ecosystem is a, a critically important step. We just saw um, yesterday that the, the bill was voted out of the assembly, so it passed one house of the legislature in California, now moved to the California Senate. Um, so we're very hopeful that we'll see uh, another step in the direction that will help hopefully reduce some of these very dangerous rodenticides for wildlife. Okay, we're speaking with Jonathan Evans about rodenticides in our environment. There's a lot more to talk about right after the break. Today, fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jonathan Evans with the Center for Biological Diversity. Jonathan, no one wants to see mountain lions and bobcats being poisoned and killed by rat poisons, but are any endangered species being harmed by them? Unfortunately, we see a range of endangered species that are harmed by rodenticide poisonings. Uh, most of that information it comes from California, where it's been studied the most. We have the San Joaquin kit fox, which is uh, an adorable little small kit fox that lives in the southern part of the Central Valley near Fresno and Bakersfield and up in the eastern parts of the California Delta um, that often um, is succumbing to rodenticide poisonings. Uh, there have been necropsy reports that have been um, conducted by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife that found that these second-generation anticoagulants are killing San Joaquin kit foxes. There's also been uh, a range of um, poisonings of 
the Pacific Fisher, which is a, a listed as an endangered species in California, um, uh, mostly in the northern part of the state, um, in the redwood country of uh, Humboldt and Del Norte County, and we're seeing high levels of exposure, upwards of 70, 80 percent of these Pacific fishers that are um, succumbing to um, identified poisoning. A lot of that has to do with illegal trespass marijuana grows on our public lands, but a lot of um, sort of gray market or black market marijuana use leading to identified poisoning. We're also seeing that same type of uh, black market marijuana production leading to poisonings of northern spotted owls. Mm. So we're seeing it uh, occurring kind of in a range of different wildlife. But but in California, you know, we know that um, the, the animals tested for rodenticides um, are, are showing high levels of exposure. Over 70% of wildlife tested in recent years has been exposed to second-generation second anticoagulants, and that's over 25 different wildlife species, from hawks to owls to bobcats to bears. Um, you know, it really is, is hitting a lot of um, animals very hard. Jonathan, talk about these super toxic poisons and the risks they pose to humans and children and our pets. Certainly, we have some very good information from the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Annually, they pull together data on all the types of poisonings that occur from in our households. And they found that in 2017, the most recent year they have um, complete data, that more than 3,800 children under the age of six were poisoned with these super toxic rodenticides throughout the United States. And these are preventable deaths. We shouldn't be using these poisonings in households. It really is a, um, a, a tragic impact. We shouldn't be sending kids to, to the hospital because of these rat poisons. EPA has the Environmental Protection Agency has taken some incremental steps to um, make to eliminate some of these products from consumer use, but still we're seeing them um, um, poisoning kids at, a, at an unacceptable level. So we really need to do more. There's no reason to have these worst of the worst um, poisons on the market. In addition, we're seeing um, pets also um, dying because of uh, exposure to um, rodenticide poisonings and supertoxic rodenticide. So it's not just harming our wildlife, it's harming our own families. And mm. there are steps we can take to not use these poisons, and it really is a failure of our regulators to not take stronger steps to push back on industry influence and get these products off the shelves. Jonathan, I want to tell you about our little situation at home, and maybe you can tell listeners what you think. We live in a suburban house in the desert and started noticing mouse or rat droppings in our garage. And we elected to get a few no-kill traps and using peanut butter as bait, Peter actually caught three rodents in about two weeks. Each one he released far away, but it's been a year since that happened and we haven't had any more signs of rodents so far. So we're happy we can do this without using lethal traps or poisons. What do you make of this, and how can people humanely deal with rodents? That's a great question, and your story is really illustrative of it. It's something that you, is treatable in a way that is it can be humane and, and doesn't cause a threat to your families. And uh, I think uh, people just need to be cautious when they are using um, live traps because you know some types of rats and mice do um, lead to can lead can be disease vectors so just be careful when you're using that and the type of method is the same thing with uh, electric electronic or snap traps those are humane methods but they do um, they can lead to uh, they, they are lethal obviously but you're kind of pointing to the fact that you need to address um, 
the the problem that's causing them. So if if you need to figure out where they're coming in, or set the traps to uh, address why they're coming in, and if you're getting to the heart of the problem, what's causing them to um, come to your household, you can deal with it in a long-term um, beneficial way. These these poisons are incredibly um, <clears throat> threatening, and there are certainly better solutions on the shelf right now to deal with um, rodent infestations. Jonathan, do you have any personal experiences dealing with rodent problems, and would you like to share them with our listeners? Certainly. I've had to deal with uh, rodenticide issues not only just in my professional career at the Center for Biological Diversity, but also um, have had a couple different rat and mouse infestations in my home. When I was living in an apartment building, we moved into a place where, unfortunately, the rats had gotten in through the hole next to the gas line and actually were nesting in our stove. So that obviously wasn't anything we, we, had, we were going to deal with. So we um, sealed off where they were getting in with the, um, by the gas line to prevent them from getting in, replaced the stove, replaced what was attracting them there in terms of shelter, um, and also realized that they were also attracted to the natural gas water heater was where it was nice and warm, so we set some traps there to deal with the, the longer-term infestation. Once we kind of figured out what they were drawn towards, for food and shelter, we're able to treat that issue uh, and in a longer-term sustainable way um, that, caused, that prevented them from coming back home. More recently, when we moved into an older home in Northern California in the East Bay of San Francisco Bay, um, we had uh, about 100-year-old um, clay pipes that were running from our home to the uh, sewer line under the street. And, you know, they, they are colloquially referred to as sewer rats for a reason, that we um, had rats coming up from our uh, the sewer lines where cracks in the clay pipe um, and then burrowing in under our house um, because uh, we because of, of other types of um, water quality issues in San Francisco Bay, all of the homes are actually replacing those old clay pipes that are broken. Once we replace the uh, clay sewer line with a more upgraded one that wasn't broken, a lot of our rat um, problems went away. So really looking at what the the heart of the situation is in terms of um, finding where they're providing food and shelter for the rodents um, and eliminating those sources is the best way to deal with it in the long run um, and prevent these uh, types of rodent infestations from, from happening again. Great story. Great advice. Where can listeners learn more about the industrial use of rodenticides? Well, I think a great resource for your listeners is uh, faithrodentcontrol.org. There you'll find a lot about um, safer alternatives for dealing with rodent infestations, also about the um, general uh, harms and threats of rodenticide. So I encourage your listeners to visit saferodentcontrol.org to learn a little bit more about how to humanely and safely deal with rodent infestations and learn about um, why we need to get these products off the shelves and out of the consumer's hands. Environmental Health Legal Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, Jonathan Evans, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Laura. It was great speaking with you today. Okay, thanks for joining us on Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being shared on our planet, the animals. <laughs>